may be seated. Good morning. It's a joy to gather with all of you here this morning as we come together as God's people to just rejoice in who He is and all that He has done for us in Jesus. So wherever you're at in your heart this morning, I pray that you would be encouraged and built up and have the chance to worship God from the depth of your heart as we sing and as we hear His Word this morning. If you are new or you're visiting, my name is Tim, and I'm the senior pastor here at Three Lake Evangelical Free Church, and we are glad that you are here with us. If you'd like to get to know us better, communicate anything with us at the church, there's a connect card on the seat in front of you. We would invite you to fill that out, give us any information you'd like us to have, anything you want us to know, and you can put those in the wooden boxes on the back wall on your way out this morning. Those wooden boxes are also where regular tithes and offerings can go. This morning, we will close our service by taking communion together. And when we take communion, there's also a, a special offering we take. We call it our benevolence offering, which is just a, a special offering that we use to meet tangible physical needs for people in our church family and in our community. And so at the door on your way out this morning, there'll be someone holding a, a tray. And those trays will be where the benevolence offering can go. Regular tithe and offering can go in the wooden boxes on your way out this morning. A couple of announcements to bring to your attention. One is that we're entering this sermon series, this is week two, on focusing on prayer. So in addition to the sermons, there's a few ways for you to kind of dig deeper into what prayer looks like in your life. And so one is that following the service this morning and for the next several Sundays, I'm going to lead a time using the book Praying the Bible by Donald Whitney. That'll be up here at, at 1045. And we'll just basically read a psalm together and then pray through that psalm, letting the psalm guide our time of prayer. There's also two groups that are meeting using Practicing the Way. Right? So one will start next Sunday following the service over in the library. That'll be led by, by John Welsh. Then this coming Thursday, there's one starting at the Children's Museum in Eagle River. That'll be led by Dave and M.A. Ogren. Um, if you're interested in either one of those, you can talk to the leader. If you don't know the leader, you can fill out a connect card and put it in the box and just say, I'm interested, or you can come talk to me, or we'll, and we'll get you set up with that. There's also a women's Bible study that's going to look at prayer, and so to talk a little bit more about that, I'm going to invite Donna Russell to come up. Good morning. Yes, speaking of prayer, ladies, you are invited to a women's Bible study on prayer. It will be beginning on October 30th, and our plan is for it to run through the end of January. We are offering the same study on both Monday evenings at 6 p.m. and Tuesday mornings at 8.30 a.m. So we're hoping one of those times works for you. So please, if you think you may be interested and you want to see the materials that we are going to be using to study prayer, uh, the book and the study guide are downstairs in the office. Feel free to grab one. And if you do, please just jot your name that's on the envelope there. The cost of the book is $22 if you can pay, but if you can't, that's fine. We still would love for you to come. This study is meant to deepen your personal prayer life. We welcome you, and please feel um, free to invite a sister, 
family member, a friend, we would love to have you there. And if you have any questions, feel free to see me. Thank you. A few more announcements that are on the, the back of your bulletin. I'll kind of let you read through those on your own for the most part, but just wanted to mention that this afternoon at 4 p.m., Eric Gustafson will lead us in a, an old-fashioned hymn sing. If you're interested in that, we invite you to join us at, at 4 this afternoon um, to, to take part in that. So again, it's just a joy to, to be together, to worship, and to be together before our God. And so as we continue in the time of worship, would you join me in a time of prayer? Father God, we, we come before you this morning having gone through whatever we've gone through in this past week, each of us through different highs and different lows as we've lived our lives in this broken world. There have been challenges and there have been joys and that we come here this morning to worship you, to say that you are worthy of all honor and glory and praise, that you as the almighty, all-loving creator of the universe deserve nothing short of our praise. And yet, God, we confess that we so often fail to give you that praise in our day-to-day -day lives, that we set ourselves up as our own little God over our own little life and fail to acknowledge you as the almighty king of the universe who rules over everything. And so in this morning, as we come before you, would we set our hearts, set our minds on you as you truly are, the God who is worthy of praise, and would we Remember that you are God and we are not. You are perfect and holy and just and we are not. That we are fallen sinners desperately in need of your grace. And yet out of your great love for us, you pour out that grace on us. You forgive our sins through Christ and through his death, burial, and resurrection. Lord, we rejoice this morning. You are a God who loves us enough to send your Son to die for us, that we can be forgiven, that we can have right relationship with you. And as we look out at the world and see all the trials, all the, the signs of fallenness and brokenness, as we live our lives and walk through fallenness and brokenness, would you give us constant encouragement and hope in the fact that Jesus will one day return. He will set all things right. That he will bring a new heavens and a new earth where there will be no more pain or suffering or death or sin. And as we look forward to that day, as we live this life looking forward to that day, would you help us to live faithfully to live obediently, to live the life you have called us to live for your glory. Praise all in Jesus' name. Amen.
stand with us as we continue to sing?
Father, you have been faithful all our lives. When we were faithless, you remained faithful. And so would that move us, God, to sing of your goodness, to rejoice in your love and goodness for us as we come to your word this morning. Praise all in Jesus' name. Amen. May we see it. Your child in 4K through second grade, you can head on down to Children's Church at this time. this race it's called called the Badwater 135 it's an ultra marathon and it builds itself as the toughest the world's toughest foot race and there's no shortage of things that make it tough right? for one as the name suggests it's 135 miles right? which is just dumb right? like <laughs> like I've been slacking a little bit my running but I ran like seven miles yesterday and I kind of wanted to die a little bit so like 135, like, that's like five marathons. Right? Like one marathon scares me, and five plus marathons, just crazy. Right? So that's, that's already hard enough. Right? But this race is not just in any conditions. It runs from Death Valley, California, which you may know is the lowest point in North America, right? the low sea level, right? to the summit of Mount Whitney, which is the highest point in the contiguous United States. All told, runners climb over 14,000 feet and descend over 8,000 feet in the ups and downs of this race. That's hard enough, but by far the most challenging aspect of this race, more challenging than distance, more challenging than the climbing, is the heat. This race is run in California in July. As I mentioned, it, it starts in Death Valley. When in July of 1917, the hottest temperature ever was recorded. Temperatures there often, during the race, often exceed 125 degrees. Dean Carnathan, who's this like, ultra-running legend, he's run this race 11 times, once said this. He said, during the race, my shoes have melted. I've hallucinated seeing dinosaurs in the desert. I've watched an egg fry on the pavement and my cruise vehicle has caught fire. Right? And so for me, right, as a boy from Wisconsin, like, I can't imagine walking outside through that kind of heat for like five minutes. Right? Never mind running 135 miles. That kind of heat is just obnoxious. Right? Like, and it has the ability to just kind of suck the life out of us. Right? Like, this heat saps our energy. It drains us. When it's really hot out, like, I just don't want to do anything. And in today's passage, in Psalm 32, David takes that aspect of heat, its ability to kind of drain us and sap us of energy and vitality and life. And he compares that feeling to the effects of unconfessed sin. He's going to tell us in this psalm that just as being out in the heat all day long can steal energy from us, so too living with the weight and burden of unconfessed sin can sap us of energy and life 
and vitality. So let's see that. Let's look at Psalm 32 together. I'm going to read the whole psalm to you, but this morning we're going to focus on verses 1 through 5. It's David writing in Psalm 32. He says this, Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let all the faithful pray to you while, they, while you may be found. <clears throat> Surely the rising of the mighty water will not reach them. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts in him. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all you who are upright in heart. It's interesting to note right, that this psalm, Psalm 32, starts with the exact same words that the entire book of Psalms starts with. Right? It starts with the word, blessed is the one. The fact that this is the very first verse in the entire psalm, the very first word in the entire Psalter, kind of sets a theme for the whole book, right? The book of Psalms, all 150 of them, right, kind of all point to this idea of what the blessed life ultimately looks like. But often when we talk about being blessed or having blessings, we talk about well, like being blessed with material possessions or, or circumstances, right? You can go on social media and, like, someone got a raise and they're bragging about and they'll, like, end it with, like, hashtag blessed, or somebody got some new whatever possession, and they talk about how blessed they are to receive this thing. But the biblical understanding of blessed is, is much richer than that. It's about this state of kind of being in a position to receive God's favor, regardless of physical circumstances, to be in a state of well-being despite what might be going on around you place of knowing that you are with God, that you're in a right relationship with God, which makes sense when you read Psalm 1, verses 1 and 2. This is how much right there. Blessed is the one who does not walk in the step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on his law day and night. And you can read that and say, yeah, like, I would expect that person to be blessed by God. I would expect that person to receive God's favor. Yeah, they're, they're walking with God. They're not walking except the wicked. Right? 
they're not standing in the way that sinners take. Like, yeah, that person should be blessed. There's just one problem, right? That doesn't always describe me. I do often stand in the way sinners take. Because I know I'm a sinner. I don't always delight in the law of the Lord. I often delight in trivial, material things more than I do in God's word. I don't meditate on God's law day and night. So often my brain is consumed with thoughts of my own concerns, my own desires, my own wants. I'm not doing that. So then what hope do I have? If that's what the blessed life looks like and I'm not doing those things, then what hope do I have to live the blessed life? Psalm 32 answers that question for us. According to Psalm 32, not only is it true that the one who doesn't stand in the way of sinners is blessed, but also blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Thankfully, living the perfectly righteous life is not the only way to experience the blessed life. If that were true, then none of us would have any hope of experience the blessed life. But there is another way to have our sins and our transgressions forgiven and our sins covered. Blessed is the one who's the Lord, whose sin the Lord does not count against them. Having God not count our sin against us is also a path to the blessed life. There's this blessedness that comes from experiencing Forgiveness, in particular the, the forgiveness that comes from God forgiving our sins. And you might be inclined to say, well, that's nice and all. Sure, God can forgive some sins, but you don't know the things I've done. I've done too much. My sins are too great. There is no way that God for, could forgive all that I have done. If you're inclined to think that way, let me just remind you who writes this. And it's David. And you might think of David as like, a man after God's own heart and one of the heroes of the Bible. But David was also a man who committed adultery and then to cover up his adultery had the husband of the woman he committed adultery with murdered by, by sending him to the front lines of a battle he had no hope of surviving. And it was that David, the adulterer and the murderer who writes these words about blessed forgiveness. David knows what he's talking about when he talks about the blessedness of having been forgiven. In fact, the Bible tells us that it is precisely those who know how much they've been forgiven that can truly experience the blessedness that comes from forgiveness. Tim Keller points out that there are we see kind of three types of people in the Bible. There are those people who think they are too good to really need forgiveness. They don't really need to be forgiven because they're, they just have lived a good life. Think of the Pharisees. Think of the older brother in the story, the prodigal son. Like they're too good to really feel like they need forgiveness. Then there are those who think they are too bad to receive forgiveness. They think they've sinned too much. They have no hope of ever being forgiven. Think of Judas after he betrays Jesus and then had to hangs himself because he feels there's no way out. That's two types. People think they're too good to be for forgiveness. People who think they're too wicked to receive forgiveness. But then there's the third type. 
Those who know they have sinned greatly, but they also know they've been forgiven greatly. And the psalm tells us that, that those people who know they are truly blessed. There's this story in, in Luke chapter 7 where Jesus is invited to the house of a Pharisee for a meal. And this woman of ill repute comes in and she starts crying at being near Jesus. And she anoints Jesus' feet with perfume and with her tears. And it's this incredible act of supreme love for Jesus and emotion towards Jesus. And the Pharisee says to Jesus, if this man were a prophet, he would know who was touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus replies, I tell you, her sins, and they are many, have been forgiven. So she she has shown me much love. But a person who has forgiven little shows only little love. And David, and that that woman in Luke 7, and, and Peter after his denial and restoration, these are people who are deeply aware of their sin. But because they're deeply aware of their sin and their brokenness, they are therefore deeply, deeply thankful for the forgiveness they have received. Because they are aware of their sin, they're deeply aware of how blessed it is to receive forgiveness. The question then becomes for each of us, like what type of person are you? Are you, do you think you're too good for forgiveness? Or do you think you're too bad to receive forgiveness? Or have you examined your life and seen the depth of your own sin, but then also experienced the forgiveness of God for those sins? And if you let that forgiveness move you to a deep love for God, her day, blessedness in knowing that our transgressions are forgiven and our sins are covered. But there's also a flip side of that blessedness. David goes on in verses 3 and 4 to describe the burden he was under when his sins were unconfessed and unacknowledged. He says in verses 3 and 4, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped within the heat of summer. David here putting in poetic language the burden of unconfessed sin. His bones wasted away. He groaned all day long. God's hand was heavy on him. His strength was sapped within the heat of summer. There's a serious burden that comes from carrying around unconfessed sin. It's hard work to act like everything is fine and dandy when it is not. And yet we we tend to be people who, who hide our sin and hide our burdens and act like everything is okay. We feel this need seemingly as we've been Christians longer and longer to act like we're progressing and overcoming sin and therefore we have less to confess. We have this like American kind of plead the fifth mentality. Right? Like, I'm not going to admit, you can't make me confess to the things I did wrong. I'm going to plead the fifth. I'm not going to admit my guilt. Tyler Staten writes, one of the biggest mistakes we've made in the modern church 
to reimagine spiritual maturity at the need to confess less. The unspoken assumption is, as I ascend in relationship with God, I confess less because I have less to confess. But true spiritual maturity is the opposite. It's not an ascension. It's an archaeological dig as we discover layer after layer of what was in us all along. As we discover more and more of what was in us all along, we confess that to God. I really like the way the band Cath and Crowns articulate the feeling in their song, Stained Glass Masquerade. They write, Is there anyone that fails? Is there anyone that falls? Am I the only one in church today feeling so small? Because when I look around, everyone seems so strong. I know they'll soon discover that I don't belong. So I tuck it all away like everything's okay. If I make them all believe it, maybe I'll believe it too. So with a painted grin, I play the part again so that everyone will see me the way that I see them. Are we happy plastic people under shiny plastic steeples with walls around our weakness and smiles that hide our pain? The performance is convincing and we know every line by heart. Only when no one is watching can we really fall apart. We have this sense that we have to come before people, be in public and before even God and with this idea that we are all, got it all figured out, we're all put together and only when no one is watching can we really fall apart. I don't know if that resonates with you much as it does with me, but like every time I hear that song, it hits home. I feel what they're saying there. I feel this need to put on a mask, right? to be a happy, plastic person, to act like I no longer struggle with sin. But when I do that, right, I put myself under this great burden of unconfessed sin. Maybe no more famous picture of this than the book Crime and Punishment by Theodore Dostoevsky. In that book, it's all about exploring the burden of guilt and unconfessed sin. Early in the book, the the protagonist commits murder. And the the bulk of the book is about him spiraling deeper and deeper into despair and paranoia over his unconfessed sin. And only when he confesses and is arrested does his life begin to improve, even though it involves being sentenced to a prison in Siberia. It's just the sense of weight and burden that comes from knowing we're not who we're projecting the world to the world. And we tend to think that confession and letting others see us as we really are will somehow ruin our joy and our happiness, that we'll feel exposed and therefore unhappy. That's just a lie from Satan. I love how C.H. Spurgeon puts it. It does not spoil your happiness to confess your sin. The unhappiness is in not making the confession. Our, when it comes to prayer, like our, our prayer will, will never be meaningful and authentic if we try to hide who we really are from God. If we try to clean ourselves up before we come to God in prayer, we can never really pray because as Richard Foster says, sin, to be sure, separates us from God. But trying to hide our sins separates us all the more. 
It's not like you can hide it from God anyway. He knows you better than you know yourself. David said in Psalm 139, You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. God knows all the sin, all the junk, all the burdens that are going on in your life. You're not hiding your sin from God. So by not confessing, you're only adding burdens and unhappiness to your own life and hiding nothing from God. You're accomplishing nothing while making your life more burdensome. I don't know, right? Like what you, what you walk through these doors bearing this morning. I don't know what, what sins you've been struggling with, what you've been hiding behind a mask. I don't know what sins you've been leaving unconfessed to God, right? But I'm, I'm sure that there are many of you here this morning who feel this weight that David described, that you feel your, your bones wasting away, that you feel your strength sapped by heat, that you feel God's heavy hand upon you, that you feel the burden of unconfessed sin. If that's you this morning, I just hope that you know that there is, there is hope, and David describes that hope in verse 5. David says, Then I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. Confession of our sins is it's the pathway from the burden that David describes in verses 3 and 4 to the blessedness that he describes in verses 1 and 2. It's through confession that we move from burden to blessedness. When we, when we confess our sins and we understand that God has forgiven our sins, then we find the joy and the blessedness that David described at the beginning of the psalm. In the letter of 1 John, the Apostle John articulates this beautifully. He writes in verse 8, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we claim to be too good to need confession, then the truth is not in us. But in verse 9 he says, But... If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. He goes on to say, if we claim we have not sinned, we make Him out to be a liar and His word is not in us. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin, but If anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. Living as we do on on this side of history, on this side of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, We are blessed to know even better than David how it is that God can forgive our sins without merely turning a blind eye to them. At the cross, Jesus took our sins upon himself. All our sins, past, present, and future. He paid the penalty at the cross that those sins deserved. He died for those sins and he was buried, but then he was raised again on the third day and he ascended into heaven. And now John tells us 
that after he ascended into heaven, he sits at the Father's right hand, and he serves as our advocate with the Father. He, he advocates for us, reminding the Father that he died for our sins, to take away our sins, so that we can be forgiven. And that knowledge that through Christ our sins have been dealt with, that we no longer bear the guilt of our sins, and that knowledge that freely allows us to confess our sins. We can be confident that we're not incriminating ourselves before God by confessing. But we can be confident that God already knows all that we're going to confess, and He's already dealt with those sins at the cross through Christ. There's a a strong correlation between how well you understand the forgiveness that is found in Jesus through the gospel and how willing you are to confess your sins. An unwillingness or a hesitancy to confess sins reveals that we don't understand the grace and mercy that Jesus offered as deeply as we should. Confession is is merely admitting to God what He already knows to be true of us. And therefore, the act of confession is not something we do for His benefit, for our own. It removes this burden of unconfessed sin from us, and it restored our relationship with God. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the, the German theologian who was killed under Hitler's regime, said this. He said, He who is alone with his sin is utterly alone. But it is the grace of the gospel that confronts us with the truth and says, You are a sinner, a great, desperate sinner. Now come, as the sinner you are, to the God who loves you. In a few minutes, we're going we're to take communion, the Lord's Supper, together. And communion is this tangible, visible reminder that Jesus' body was broken. That Jesus' blood was spilled in order for our sins to be forgiven so we, can, so we no longer need to feel the burden of our sin. Before we get to communion, I want to touch on a couple kind of practical points of, of confession with you. One is that we don't kind of vacillate between being saved and unsaved, depending on how good we're doing at confession at a given time. Because our, our faith in Christ saves us once for all. That if there's some unconfessed sin, it's not going to disqualify you from heaven. Like you are saved past, present, and future sins by Jesus at the cross. So the reason to confess is not to re-earn God's favor, re-earn your forgiveness, but it's to take the burden off yourself, to remove the burden of unconfessed sin, and to restore relationship with God. The second thing is that sometimes I think we're hesitant to talk about confession because there's this stigma that comes from like those who have experienced the, the, a Catholic version of confession. Right? You need a priest to, to mediate God's forgiveness. We don't believe you need a priest to mediate. Right? We believe you can go to God yourself and confess and receive the forgiveness that comes from Jesus. But we're going to be careful that we don't throw the baby of confession out with the bathwater of priestly mediation. 
confession is still biblically commanded and offered to us as a way to deepen our relationship with God. Third thing, practical point. Like we've talked a lot this morning about, about confessing your sins to God in prayer, and that's important. Right? But it's also important in, in confessing to one another. In James 5, James writes, Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. And confession to others can be even scarier than confessing to God because, as we said, God already knows everything, but others have seen our mask, seen our righteous costume, and maybe don't, aren't aware of our sin. And so revealing that to others can seem scary. And James said, confess, right? And then, what did he say? As you confess, don't judge one another. Don't compare sin to see who's better than the other one. But pray for one another that they may be healed. Again, when we understand the gospel, we understand that we're all sinners who have been saved by grace, but who are still fighting sin, then we can freely confess our sin to one another, not to be judged by the other, but to ask for prayer and for help. So I just encourage you right, to, whether it's a small group or an accountability partner or a mentor, find someone you can confess your sin to, to, to be unburdened, to bring your sin out into the light as a way to take steps in dealing with it. In conclusion, I just want to read a little more of a Tyler Stanton quote that I read earlier, because I just believe it sums this all up very well. He says this, Spiritual maturity means more confession, not less. Maturity is discovering the depths of my personal brand of fallenness and the depths to which God's grace has really penetrated, even without me knowing it. The desperate need of our time is not for successful Christians or popular Christians or winsome Christians. The need of our time is for deep Christians. And the only way to become a deep Christian is through the inner excavation called confession. The pathway of spiritual maturity is a descent, not an ascent. A maturing community is a confessing community. Not a church without sin, but a church without secrets. The alternative to hiding is the refusal to hide. The terrifying insistence on exposing ourselves to God That's the only way to open ourselves up to unconditional love. Ever wonder what made David a man after God's own heart? That's a phrase on his tombstone, but read his bio. He was a liar, manipulator, adulterer, and murderer. So what about his life made his heart like God's? Only this. The Psalms he authored are peppered with personal confessions. Honest, unfiltered, raw nakedness before God. He was a long way from perfection, but he refused to hide. When he realized he was naked, he didn't pick up fig leaves. He ran to the Father. Now we're going to enter into this time of communion together. We're going to remember that Jesus' death made it possible for us to experience the blessedness of forgiveness. That his death allows us to examine ourselves and be honest with ourselves and before God about where we are with our sin. 
we're going to take communion together to remember that, but just let me give you a few kind of things on how we do communion here first. Right? We have communion set up at two stations here and here. Right? I'd encourage you to come down these kind of side aisles here to take communion, and then if you're in one of these kind of central pews, just go to the middle and then go back to your seat that way to avoid congestion. If you're on the side, you can swing out to the outside and then go back to your, to your seat. You're going to avoid confusion. Right? As you come, right, there are gluten-free elements in the wicker baskets in the back if you would prefer that. And if you are, would rather have the element brought to you, right? you can raise your hand and someone will bring you the element to you if it's easier for you that way than coming forward. Few minutes we will take pit together. But it's gonna before we before we get into taking communion, in light of what we heard this morning, I just want to give us a few minutes to to examine ourselves. The Apostle Paul writing about communion said that everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. I just want to give us a few minutes to do that together. To examine your own heart, to confess your sins to God and to get your mind kind of thinking about sin. I just want to read a prayer of confession from a, from a Puritan, a guy named Philip Doddridge. And the Puritan, they have a picture of them as, based on their name, these very pure, morally upright individuals. But the Puritans as a whole were a group that was keenly aware of the depths of their sin. So I'm going to read this just to kind of prime your mind to think about confession. And I'm going to give you a few minutes of quiet reflection on your own. And then when the music starts and you're ready, you can come forward, take the elements, return to your seats, and then when everyone has the elements, we will partake together. But first, hear this prayer from the Puritan Philip Doddridge. Injured King and Almighty Judge, what can I say to the charges against me? Should I pretend to be offended and defend myself, I dare not. You know my foolishness. None of my sins is hidden from you. My conscience tells me that denying my crime would only increase them and add new fuel to the fire of wrath I deserve. I am more guilty than I can say. My heart speaks more than any accuser, and you, Lord, are much greater than my heart. You know it all. What has my life been but rebellion against you? It is not this or that particular sin alone. From start to finish, nothing has been right. My whole soul has been disordered. All my thoughts and affections, my desire, my pursuits, everything has been alienated from you. I have acted as if I hated you, and you are infinitely the loveliest of all beings, as if I have been trying to wear out your wonderful patience. My actions have been evil, my word yet more so, and my heart, how much more corrupt than either. What a fountain of sin and original corruption is my heart. It mingled its bitter dreams with the days of early childhood and flows on even to this day. And I have been growing worse and worse, provoking your patience more and more. I am astonished that your patience continues. If the offense were against me, I could not have endured it as you have. 
Had I been a prince, I would long ago since have done justice on any rebel who crimed even faintly resembled mine. Had I been a parent, I would have long ago since cast off such an ungrateful child. Why then, Lord, am I not cast out of your presence? Why am I not sealed up under an irreversible sentence of destruction? I owe my life to your indulgence. But if there is yet any way of deliverance, any hope for so guilty a creature, may it be opened to me by your gospel and grace. If any more humiliation or terror is needed for my salvation, may I bear it all. Wound my heart, Lord, so that you can heal it afterward. Break it to pieces so that you may bind it up again. Amen. Take a few moments to quietly reflect, and then when the music's dark and you're ready, you can come forward and take the elements.
Father God, we, <clears throat> we thank you. We praise you for the life and death and resurrection of your son, Jesus, who makes possible our relationship with you, who makes it possible for us to confess our sins, knowing that we've been forgiven in Christ knowing that there's nothing we can do that can separate us from your love for us because we are your in Christ. Let me thank you and we praise you for that. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. As we take the bread, it's a reminder that the body of Jesus was broken. That he died and had a body broken for us, for our sins. That we can receive the grace of God, the forgiveness of God, that we can freely confess, knowing that our sins have already been dealt with. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. When he given thanks, he, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's partake. After supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Partake. Father, we thank you for this gift, this reminder, this tangible expression of your love for us. But we leave here remembering all that you've done for us in Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As you leave here today, would you go free from the burden of unconfessed sin feeling and receiving the blessedness that comes from knowing you are forgiven. You are dismissed.
Oh.